A recent Supreme Court decision gives us the opportunity to explore the human right of religious liberty, but we will start with this cheerful question. Is the United States under the judgment of God? On this week's Corey Truax Show. As I am wont to do, I heard something that I had an intellectual reaction to. I began to dwell on it, ruminate on it, and it got me to a set of conclusions that I think you will, I hope, learn from, maybe maybe will or will not enjoy, but it's some information that I think will help us all. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find me on Sunday mornings at Beachwood Church. At 10.30, would love to have you there any given Sunday morning. A good reminder to believers this time of year, even in a culture that is getting more antagonistic to spiritual things, if your coworkers, if those around you in the little league where you the little league where you coach or the gym you go to, the time, especially in the South, people are most likely to and uh, to accept an invitation to a worship gathering. It's Easter and Christmas, and so we are coming up on it to this Easter season. So. I highly encourage doing that. Here we go. I was getting deeper down into this rabbit hole I started on last week of people I consider to be ideological brethren or sistren expressing a great deal of skepticism of Ukraine. Quick time out. I got a great voicemail from a voice before the show. You can do that on the Anchor app, by the way. On the Anchor app, you can leave this show a voicemail. Brandon, who is a monthly contributor to the show and a good friend, who has a, who has a lot of actual on-the-ground experience in Eastern Europe, he confirmed for me that this was a part of religious war because the Orthodox churches of Russia and of Ukraine are almost like crime families. They're oligarchs, and so that's what one of those nasty things that happens when powerful people use religion or use the church and its language and its infrastructure for their own malicious means. And so, as we talked about last week, I just wanted to give you confirmation. Someone who has more familiarity of the, of the reality on the ground is it is sort of a religious war. All right, now, back to my point. I was going further down that rabbit hole trying to figure out why are people that I, I think are like me seeming to be so low on a Ukraine? And I heard, th- I saw this in a comment thread, basically. Well, you know, Ukraine is aligned with the West. And the, the West has all these sinful problems. But did you know that Russia still, ha- still makes homosexuality criminalized? You know that Russia has uh, st- still a view of, of gender that is traditionally biblical? Russia is on God's side. Someone said that. I read those words. Russia is on God's side. Now, that does away with every other sin of Russia. Abortion is a form of birth control there. They are a a violent people to to their women and children. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, they've invaded a country and are killing people unprovoked. That does not mean that the sexual sins of the West are not very serious. But what I saw in that comment was this, the idea, God is judging the West, and he's using Russia to do it. Even if they're not great, 
He's using Russia to judge the West, to make the, the West weaker by showing that the West is kind of like a paper tiger because they're not coming to Ukraine's aid in a military manner. And just that one thought, God is using Russia to judge Ukraine, which I don't think, I mean, I don't know God's ways. I don't know God's thoughts. I wouldn't interpret it that way because I, 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 I also wouldn't interpret it in the negation. I think most of us need to quit trying to interpret God's hand in world events so like we can get a, like, get a full control of it. But it sent me down this, this train of thinking. Things feel bad here, don't they? And not just since the most previous administration. It's not that. I mean, for I would put it at almost two decades now. It just feels like the country has strained and strained, and the, the threads are getting thin. And by the threads, I mean, imagine that fabric, the fabric of a towel or a shirt that you've had for a long time, and it goes through the wash, it gets the wear and tear of the dryer, and you can start to see the, the threads as they come apart. They're getting thin. Our cultural cohesion, the things that, that pull, hold us together, they just seem to be getting thin. And then you think about economic hard, hard times that we went through in, in 08 and some military losses, on, or at least embarrassments on the world stage, like in Afghanistan, the, the 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 quiet, not quiet, but the cold civil war I've talked about for seven years on the show. And I wondered, are we under judgment? Is the Lord of nations, that's what Psalm 22 says about him, he is the Lord of nations. Is he using us to judge us? giving us over to our own basis desire so that we might destroy ourselves as a nation. Not necessarily the believers in that nation, because as America diminishes or weakens, or any other country does, I, I always have that abiding hope that the church is going to be fine, and my first citizenship is just as healthy as it's ever been, no matter what happens here in the country. So I started here. Is that, is that a thing God does? Does he judge nations or does he judge individuals? Because you know I'm super individualistic. That that God would do uh, would judge the collective is something that I immediately I I immediately have a, a knee jerk reaction against. But my instincts, because they are fleshly, are often wrong, and all of my feelings and instincts must be made to submit to Scripture. So I started doing some digging. It's actually when I found that Psalm 22, or re-found that Psalm 22 that says he rules the nations. I think it says, kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules the nations. He's the king of everything. Here's what I found about God judging nations. Because of course in the Bible you could find that he judged Israel. He was the God of Israel. And so a great deal of the major and minor prophets are judgments against the nation of Israel, often for their sins. And I wondered, well, is that just a special relationship? A special relationship with that nation? And I find, no. God did use prophets, and sometimes his own voice, to pronounce judgment upon nations. Here's some of the things I found that God tolerates a people group up to some point 
And then there comes a point where he decides that they must be punished. I, I where, where I was reading this week is in the prophets, but it, it made me refer back first, that this idea made me refer back to Exodus, where God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great people. And then I'm going to send you away for a hundred years. What was it? 200. For some hundred years, I'm going to send you away for some, some centuries into slavery. And after those years are up, then I will bring judgment on those who enslaved you. It's an odd thing for God to promise. Hey, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to make you great, and you're going to grow, and you're going to go into slavery. I'm going to wait centuries, and then I will free you from that slavery. I think it's totally fair then to ask, uh, why the delay? I'm not even asking you why the slavery. Like, what, can we just do it for a week or something? Like, why, why do we have to go for centuries? Well, he actually has in the same passage the reasoning. God says, I'm going to do it for 400 years for this reason, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Implying here that if I'm understanding the interpretive, if I'm understanding this correctly, interpreting it correctly, saying, there's a people group that you're going to displace when you come out of slavery and you go into Canaan. And they are, they're, they're sinning. Their sinning has not become fully complete. And I will then use you to go judge them. There's a whole second purpose for that. It, like it's, it's God judging nations. It, that this shows, yes, God judges nations that he is, quote, not the God of, like they don't claim him. It, it was also for Israel to know, hey, when you go beat them and you take the land, it's not because you did anything good. It's because I'm just using you. I'm good to use you to go do my, I was about to say cosmic, but that's actually not cosmic. Uh, that this world event. I want to punish this group in Canaan for what they've done. I will just use you to do it. That trend of God using nations to punish other nations just continues throughout that Old Testament. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel get taken into their exiles, get taken over. Then Israel is raised back up to pronounce judgment upon this other people group. So God judges nations and he uses other nations to do it is what I found. You know, I even, I found in the, in the, in the pronouncements over Canaan and, wh- and why Israel is going to go take Canaan, what God specifies is a lot of sexual sins and violence. The, peop- the places you're, where you're going, they commit adultery, they chi- have child sacrifices, they, are, they have given in to homosexuality, and now Israel, you go take them. And then turning around, God will say to Israel, 100 years later, hundreds of years later, you've been unfaithful to me. Your idolatry and setting up of Baals, other idols. I will use this other people group over here. I'll use these pagans over here to, to take you down. I read it in Jonah this week. It hits me. Jonah's story, goes, it goes so fast you kind of forget. He was there in Nineveh to say, you're a violent people. God is coming to judge you. There's judgment coming on your city from a God that you don't even claim. He has the authority and the power, and he's going to do it, but they repent, and God relents. I did a little search around Ligonier's website and a couple other places and found that there are judgments pronounced on nations 
in the Old Testament for these purposes. People who had, uh, for arrogant nations, idolatrous nations, there are, in the Minor Prophets, judgments against a nation because it was a nation that took bribes and extorted people. And then Amos talks a lot about oppression of the weak and the poor. And so these are justifications throughout the Bible, I find. God is willing to judge a nation for these things. And I, I look at the nation where I live, not the nation to which I belong, because I am from another place. But the nation where I belong, do I, where I belong, am I, do I live in an arrogant place? Well, I, I think so. We accumulate so much stuff. We have so much wealth. Life is so easy. And we're arrogant enough to think we deserve it. We're arrogant enough not to have just day after day of thankfulness. We actually have just one out of 365 on the calendar where we emphasize being thankful. Are we an idolatrous people? Oh yeah, we're made of it. Idolatry of the self. Idolatry of wealth. I think we're a very materialistic place. Are we a place of bribery and extortion? Probably not. Or maybe not that corrupt. Of oppression was the last one on that list. In some ways. I just started thinking after that Ukraine and Russia discussion and then thinking about how bad things feel here. Are we just under judgment? For, for those sins and others. Remember, Canaan was punished for the sexual sins. We have our own form of child sacrifice and abortion. We have fully commodified sexuality. It's a way to make money. Take, taken away any guardrails around sexuality. There's, there's not just uh, toleration. There's an absolute celebration of what, what the Bible would call devious sexualities. I know that makes some of you uncomfortable to call homosexuality de- uh, deviant. I'm, I'm going to give you the biblical language here. I'm going to give you a biblical perspective. But I'm, I'm not talking about uh, punishment and judgment just for those things. I, I just would all of it. I'm going with all of those things. I'm not picking out pet sins here. I'm saying for all of those things, when I look through the scriptures and I see what God judges nations for, I kind of lean towards that being the case. And maybe I would just say to you, let's be people of repentance. Let it not be true of the church in this nation that those things are true. Those those things that mark our culture mark our churches. And let us be a people praying for what happened in Nineveh. That the nation would repent of its sins. Because I I think I think we're probably under judgment, and I know it is not a fun way to start your Saturday morning if you're listening live. I know it's not a fun way to start the day whenever you're listening to this on podcast, but if we are under judgment now, if you look at the, if the, the trajectory of our culture, it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better. When we return, the Supreme Court made a decision this week about a religious liberty case that allows us the opportunity to dig in on the fundamental nature of religious liberty. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on His Radio Talk. I will give you the facts of the case in this religious liberty ruling from, or the lack of a ruling, really, from the Supreme Court here in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and on his radio talk. You can find me 
on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there, and you can email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. These are the facts of the case. There's a Christian organization in Washington. I believe they are just around Seattle, and they do legal work and other mercy ministry, but they also do some legal work for people who need help. So they do it pro bono, and they serve the poor in their city. It actually seems like a really great organization because Seattle's a hard place to do any kind of ministry. Back in 2017, an attorney was applying for a job at, at to be one of the attorneys that works with this organization in Seattle. This attorney identifies as a Christian and also identifies as a gay guy who's married to another gay guy. So he sued as someone who identifies as a Christian would do to another Christian. He sued the organization saying he was being discriminated against as a matter of employment because this place wouldn't consider to hire him because his lifestyle, his sin does not match their standards. The lower court that first heard the case dismissed the case. They said to the guy who sued them, they have purview over who they hire and who they don't hire. If your values don't match, then your values don't match. The case is dismissed. He appealed all the way to the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court there in Washington said back in, I guess that was last fall, they didn't make a, they didn't make a decision. They sent it back to the lower court and with this guidance. Sent it back to the first court and said, hey, you need to consider whether or not the lawyer job at a ministry is actually ministerial. We might let this, consider the language I just used, I used it very specifically, we might let a religious organization choose not to hire people who match their values if they're serving in a ministry capacity, but this lawyer job is not necessarily a ministry capacity. It's not theological in nature. So we're sending it back to you. Now, we know how that's gone in Washington for people like Barry L. Stutzman, how it's gone in Colorado for Jack Phillips. They're, they're out, in these, out in these places, out west in very secular areas. The standard seems to be that the, whoever the religious person is, the Christian has to lose. Religion is the, 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 the right that we are not going to, and the right of, the word is association. If it's about religion, we're going to diminish that. Now, so the state Supreme Court sent it down to the original court. Well, then the organization, the Christian organization, said to the Supreme Court, Hi, guys. Can you guys just rule here? Can you guys just step in and end this five-year process and decide if, if we have to hire people who don't match our lifestyle standards? And the Supreme Court did not take the case. They refused to take it, but joined by Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito put out a statement that said, we're not at the spot where we should. The process needs to play, play out. The lower court needs to rule. The appeals need to happen. But they also said, but there is coming a time where we are going to have to decide this. It, it's now been a decade of LGBTQIA+, and all the other stuff. That, that right of self-identification has bumped up against the fundamental right to religious liberty, and eventually we're going to have to decide which one wins. Now, those are the facts of the case. This, it made me think of something we need to settle deep in our own instincts about how we think about liberty and especially religious liberty. For, 
for religious liberty and really any freedom to be properly practiced, adjudicated, the posture of a people group must be the following. The religious person, the believer, is free to do as they please in accordance with their, with their faith, and any attempt by any government to impede upon their religious liberty. The government has the burden of proof to justify its interference. So the, the default setting is that we're just free, and if you want to do anything to my freedom, you're going to have to work very hard as a government to justify that you should be able to do that. That should be the posture. What you find in this court case is there's a bunch of folks on the left and some on the right where their natural posture towards religious liberty is that the world is secular and if you want to act Christianly in this world, you're going to have to justify it. If you want to bring your religion into into the public space, if you want to bring your religion to work, if you want to be who you are in public, you're going to have to justify that because we demand to live in a secular, atheistic, which ends up being a humanist, which is a religion, we demand to live in a humanist world. And th- th- those are the two worldviews that are, at, that are fighting. Is the individual just free to be a believer, and you have to justify impeding on his freedom, or is everyone really supposed to be an atheist in public, and if you want to try to be a Christian in public, you have to justify it? That's what the court has to decide. We need the courts to come in and clarify what is the actual posture towards liberty in the United States of America. Now, I've, uh, now I have a rabbit trail. I had only one other point I wanted to make, but something just fired up in me. I think this is my new, uh, what's it called, theonomy? Is that my new theology over the last year or so? My theonomy streak is firing up here where I want to say, and if the court decided that my, for example, North Greenville University, the Southern Baptist University where I work, said, no, you have to, you have to hire folks who don't match your lifestyle, so you, you have to hire folks that are openly living in a homosexual relationship, would I, if I were in charge, I'm not. If I were in charge, I look back at that court and say, no, no, make me. And if make me ends up being some kind of financial penalty, this is this is that whole thing I talked about maybe six months ago where we need we need a concurring financial system, a concurring entertainment system, a concurring media system. Like we need our own stuff so that let's say it was a college who was banking with like I don't know Bank of America needs to be able to pull their money out and say we're we're moving our money to this bank and that bank says to the federal government no. You're not, you're, you're not freezing their accounts. No, we're not paying any fine. It, and uh, for that matter, you want to re- retaliate with some kind of accreditation stripping? Okay, we'll operate without it. But we are telling you this. No, 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 no. You don't rule here. I know that comes off, it comes off as angry. I think I'm sorry that came off, came off as angry. I'm not sure if I'm sorry yet. But there is just a sphere sovereignty thing here that I'm feeling more and more in my bones. That you judges and you government, you don't get to tell the church what to do or our parachurch ministries. And I I will defy you 
whatever I have to, I mean, whatever the consequence of that is, I say that boldly. I'm sure once the consequence comes, I'm going to be really unhappy. And I'm going to wish I wasn't this stubborn towards right and wrong. But yeah, whatever, fine. I defy you. So we need to decide. We need the courts to decide. And right now, I think there's a Supreme Court that would decide properly that the posture of the American ethos is that humans are free. And if governments want to impede upon that in any way, especially religious liberty, they have to show some really strong justification. And even if the courts and the government start ruling the wrong ways on that, I'm ready just to stand up and say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not listening to you. I want to. I want to be able to follow the laws, but you you have commanded me to sin, and I will not sin. I refuse. Here was the actual, that was a rabbit trail. I'm sorry about that. Let's come back. Last thought on this is about, it's another way in which we think about human freedom fundamentally. I'll start with a story. There is a new audio service the New York Times is trying to uh, launch here soon, and I was invited somehow I am a paid subscriber to the online New York Times, and I listen to a lot of their stuff. I was invited to be part of the beta test. So they sent me a survey. Oh, no, no, no. I was invited to apply to be a part of the beta test. They said they're only going to include a couple thousand people. And so I was filling out the form because I'd, I'd love to find out what they're doing as as a podcaster. I want to know what's coming up next. I mean, New York Times is a giant, it's a giant media conglomerate. And they had a drop-down menu for pronouns. What are your preferred pronouns? And I was grateful that they had, as one of the options, other, and then you could just fill it in. So, of course, it had he, him, she, her, they, their, or something, yeah, something like that. And then they had other. And so I clicked other, and, and it gave you a free format to write, and I just said, I deny the premise that pronouns are personal. Oh, so personal and subjective. And I filled out the rest of the survey. My suspicion is I'm not going to be included or invited to be a part of the beta test. But think about that for that reality for a second. Pronouns belong to a language. Outside of all of us, they have the meaning. I am currently talking to a microphone. Microphone has a definition amplification device. I don't actually know what it is. And so I therefore can't call myself a microphone. It's a word everyone else uses. He refers to a male. She refers to a female. The idea that they're they're subjective, that I can just choose one for myself, that's not reality. I deny the premise. Like, I will never tell anyone my pronouns because I don't don't actually have pronouns. They're not personal to me. There's just words out in the world that they refer to, they refer to me whether I, I want them to or not. Male refers to me. He refers to me. Arrogant refers to me. Uh, early riser refers to me. Just just because that's who I happen to be. It's not. They're not my words. They're not, they're not my pronouns. They're not my uh, modifiers. It's just by nature. It's who I am. And so I think about that related to freedom. I think about that related to liberty itself. Liberty, real liberty, are proper, and I think biblical, understanding of it is not dependent on anyone else. Liberty is experienced by yourself. You don't need anyone else to experience it. 
Now, that's lonely life, right? You, in your liberty, we choose to go partner with others, and anytime you partner with anybody, you give up some liberty. You're choosing of your own volition to give up some freedom you had to acquiesce to them in some ways, and they're going to give up some of their freedom to acquiesce to you in some ways, but you did that of your own volition. But freedom, the real one, requires nothing from anyone else. We are now living in a time where other people are saying to you, for me to feel free, I need something from you. I need you to call me this name. I need you to pretend I'm a female or pretend I'm a guy. I need you to let me compete in the sport that you play. Otherwise, I'm not free. I thought about that with the swimmer, the Leah Thomas story. I try not to talk about what everyone else talks about, so let me just use it as a illustration of my more important point here. Leah Thomas is saying, to be free, I'm not even going to call her that. I'll just call her Thomas, because that's not Leah. That's a guy. I don't know his, I don't, actually don't know his, his real name. This gentleman says, for me to be free, I need all of you to pretend something. Otherwise, I'm not free because you guys won't do what I I want you to do. Well, now you've just subsumed us. You've made everyone else subject to you. That's not freedom. It's also not, not loving. It's not an act of kindness. You've imposed your will on everyone else. You've imposed your delusion on everyone else. It doesn't have to just be in that gender ideology stuff. We live in a culture that has incentives for people to be thought of as a victim or of, what was that, Rachel Dolezal that wanted to be a different race. There's lots of different delusions, and it's it, it's not an act of, you're not actually free if you're requiring other people to be involved, and it's definitely not an act of any kind of kindness to others. So that's view of liberty and how we see it. If you If you need anyone else to practice it, it's not freedom. And the natural inclination for us all should be people are just free, and if anybody is going to try to challenge freedom, they're the ones with the burden of proof that they need to justify that they're allowed to do it. When we return. I actually do have some thoughts about this abortion law in Maryland that was proposed and got a lot of fanfare because it appears to allow for the, the killing of a child after birth for four weeks. I want to talk about that. Plus, I did get some input from listeners that I want to share with you as well. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Did Maryland really implement a law that would allow abortions, or I guess infanticide, 28 days after the birth of a child? Well, I'll tell you in just a minute. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk on Saturday mornings. Glad you are here. I saw in my social media feed a lot of posts about this law in Maryland that would allow, it appears, here's the actual text, not the text of the law, but here's what the text of the law means in paraphrase, that if a child, a child outside the womb in the first 28 days dies, there can't even be an investigation that the child died because of neglect. So you can't even ask the question, did, did this child, like, cause of death, was it because mom just didn't do the things she needed to do to keep it alive? 
So that specifically doesn't mean if if a child is found dead and bludgeoned or has some violence done to that to this infant, well, you can still investigate that. You can't actively kill the infant in the first 28 days, but it's saying if there's no evidence of intentional killing, you can't even ask the question, Was is the child dead because of neglect? Now, that's what the, the law would do. So a couple of quick things I want us all to have as savvy, smart, media consumers, but also this, the folks that keep every thought captive or take every thought captive, the folks that don't live in rage or fear, but are reading and consuming reading news and consuming media in a way that's super thoughtful and slow. Recently here, I even heard John Mark Comer, a guy that I'm becoming a fan of, but I still feel ah, feels like something's weird there with John Mark Comer. But he recently said he's switched to a once a week news diet. He just goes one time a week for about an hour, goes deep dive, and just says what's happened the past week in in the news. And otherwise, he's done what I do. I turned off notifications a long time ago. My phone never tells me what to do. I refuse to get a notification from Facebook, Instagram, uh, Facebook. What? Excuse me. Uh, new the news sites that I like the New York Times. I have them turned off. No one can send me a notification. My phone only makes noise when it's a text message or a call because I refuse to let Apple and big tech companies and media companies tell me what to look at. So when I want to go get news, I go get it. They don't feed it to me. By the way, I, I think you'd all be happier if you do that. You'd all have more control over your lives. And I'm even talking about the good stuff. If the Desiring God app sends you a ping, that's Desiring God telling you what to go do. I, mean, I, think, I think we'd be a much healthier country if it were not for push notifications, people telling us all what we should care about at any given time. Anyway, my actual point was to be the people who take every thought captive, who go slowly. And oh yeah, John Mark Homer, he's, he only reads the news once a week. I think that's probably... A good practice for some folks, especially higher anxiety, high anger, high emotion folks. So I saw that bill come across my feed. And because I've been doing this for so long, I already had some filters. For example, usually it's in January, but at the beginning of every legislative cycle, which is in January for every state, you will get bills that one side or the other will find outlandish, just radical. And certain media conglomerates will push those bills because they know anger sells. So there's a bill to ban assault rifles or ban something with guns. Folks on the right, will media on the right will push those out. Someone has filed a bill for example, in South Carolina or Texas or Tennessee that's anti-gun that has literally zero chance of passing, but the bill has been filed, and so right-wing media sources will push that into your feed so that you'll click it and you'll get angry, and then you'll start anger-clicking and just click every other story they've got because now you're all riled up. And folks on the left, if it's an anti-abortion bill to keep abortion at 12 weeks, 15 weeks, whatever it is, and that bill gets filed in, I, I don't know, Pennsylvania, and it has no chance of passing. Nevertheless, the left-wing sites, they push it to get their people all riled up and angry and clicking. And so immediately I had the filter, this bill isn't even a law. Now, it's evil and terrible, 
but I'm not going to I'm not going to feel the rage or sadness that I would if I knew it was going to be law and mothers and doctors were going to be protected in a situation that a mom 10 days into having a kid can just leave the kid at the house for days and days and just let the kid die. Now, if that happened, that it's, it's a level of evil that I wish God would judge us. I wish he'd rain fire on us if we ever did such a, if we did something like that. But I immediately had the filter. So an evil person, an absolute de- demonic psychopath has filed a bill. I can be some level of angry about it, but I'm not going to be angry that someone filed the bill. So that's number one. In, in our response, uh, let's make sure we go get the, get the facts and know Maryland did not pass a law that's like that. Maryland had a person in the legislature propose a law like that. Now, now let me also affirm this. Outrage, anger, sadness, these are all appropriate emotions to feel about a bill like that. I hope I've used strong enough language. I mean, I said the person who filed it is demonic and psychopathic. And listen to me, guys. I'm not being hyperbolic. I think if you want to pass a law that would allow for the abandonment of an infant so they can waste away and die, I think you're probably both demonic and psychopathic. But if you're not demonic, you're definitely psycho. You got to be one or the other or both. Now, from my lips to God's ears, I don't think the bill will pass. It's bad that it got filed. But I I want us to, I, I always have this interest. I want the temperature low. We have, in some circles, become rage monsters. And I want us to have the tools to not be rage monsters, to not be fear monsters. Not making other people fearful, but allowing media out there to come into our own emotions, come into our own mind and make us fearful. I, I uh, in the early days of doing a podcast, and I was early to this, early to this, right? I mean, we're coming up on coming up on eight years in a few months. There was the thought of uh, calling the show and another thing with Corey Truax. I think as the show has developed, as I've grown up into an, into a man, I thought if I ever renamed it or had a rebrand, I would call it Fear Not. Fear Not with Corey Truax. It's a big part of what I want to do with you, for you. I think it's in Joshua chapter 1, maybe. Fear Not, for I am with you. Or be strong. That's actually, nope, nope, that's wrong. That's the be strong and courageous, for I am with you. That can go right along there with fear not. We live in a moment that wants you scared. There are powerful forces that can make money off your fear, make money off your anger. And I don't want them to. I'm tired of commodifying people's fear and anxiety and anger. And you know what? It's kind of frustrating as I know I could. There's money to be made doing it. And it's kind of easy to do, but... It's not my interest. I don't want to do it. 
All right, that's it. That's the Maryland abortion law. Let's be careful about how we consume media. Speaking of, I received an email from Mr. Cody Fields from the Westminster Doxology Podcast. I think that is probably the third reference to that to those guys in a in, like this year already. And I'm not mad about it. I appreciate the listen and appreciate the article. Here is the premise that I'm going to take. Uh, Cody, if you're listening, I think I'm taking this in a different direction than you thought I would. There was a guy in conservative media the last 10 years that I have been generally a fan of. His name is David French. I think he's a smart guy. Talented writer. Uh, He was an Iraq war vet. I believe him to be a brother. I think he is... He's he's theologically aligned in a lot of ways. He was also a lawyer. Um, So when he got back from Iraq, he was defending Christians in court cases about free speech on college campuses and employment disputes. So he was in a, a legal system, much like Alliance Defending Freedom, who is the, is the big one in the United States. Like They defend all the religious liberty cases, like Jack Phillips with the cake maker in Colorado and Barry Nell Stutzman, the florist in Washington and that photographer in Nevada. He did something like that. So you, you hear that and immediately go, oh yeah, he's like right up your, le- you're right, right up your, your alley. You know, he's... Defender of religious liberty, military guy, uh, Christian, conservative guy. He's your kind of dude. And he is. I've been a big fan. Even to the extent that in 2016, when people like me were trying to find an alternate to support in that presidential election, David French was floated. There was a possibility French was going to step up and be the guy that people like me could go support. He didn't do it. So he was one of the faces of conservative Never Trumpism. So there's obviously another version of Never Trumpism that's not conservative. It's actually crazy and terrible, but the conservative Never Trumpism was a me and he was the face of it. And I liked him. I thought he did a good job of just making the argument that I was trying to make, not necessarily passing a ton of judgment on those that disagreed, but just saying, I can't do this and I I don't think a president can destroy a country in four years, and I'm willing to lose. I'm willing to lose an election to reset and try again another time. I thought I did a good job. But I have been disappointed. This is what Cody Fields sent me from Westminster Technology Podcast. I have been disappointed in what's happened since then. The editorial he sent me was by a guy named Aaron Wren, and it's at... The Federalist, and it's titled, How Twitter Contributed to David French's Destruction of His Own Character. And the article just details this this reality. David French got popular because he was a conservative who was willing to prophetically say back to conservatives, you're not acting conservatively. And then, because he was a staunch, and he is, a staunch defender of religious liberty, and a guy that I believe is a brother, a guy I'm going to spend eternity with, so I want to be careful about how I talk about him. He would say to Christians who had a particular affinity for the previous president, you're not acting Christianly. So he was a prophetic voice to sets of people saying, these things you say you believe, you don't seem to act like it consistently. And that got him a lot of adulation. That got him a lot of attention. 
folks on the left, folks in secularism, they liked to hear it. They liked to see prophetic words spoken to the people they despise. And that leads to invitations. That leads to getting to go on shows on CNN. That leads to be able to go on very popular liberal podcasts. That leads to be able leads to being featured on magazines as the brave Christian who says back to Christians, you're not acting Christianly in this particular way. The brave conservative who says back to conservatives, you're not acting conservative in this way because there's an entire media atmosphere that loves it. And as he started down that direction, he started to write things that are just crazy. I mean, I, I talked about it recently on a show. He went after Christians who support the previous president. You Listen, you you know, if you listen to the show, you know, I, I, I commiserate with a lot of those points. But I think he went after them in a way that wasn't, wasn't thoughtful, wasn't helpful. Its purpose, I don't think, was even for, for his brother and sister. You know, our, when we confront our brothers and sisters, our goal is always to win them back. In Matthew 18, Jesus lays out the process whereby we confront one another in sin. And it's so fully, so clear that the purpose of calling anybody out is to win them back, not just to make them feel bad, not to feel self-righteous. We just want them back. I don't think his heart was that way. It just made me think of two things. This whole saga, as I've seen him descend into a cottage industry. Like, what, what is his purpose now? His purpose is to say some condescending things to fellow Christians because he still can't get over this, uh, this personality that was on the scene for a little while and hopefully will stay gone forever. Two things. One, incentives matter in media. We need to know that about the people who are talking to us. The incentives are often just viewership, money. I've talked about it before here. You know, you know how different, maybe I'm, Lord help me not be fantastical here. It is my theory that if I would have handled the previous president differently, my life trajectory would have been different. There's a lot of untalented people who follow a different trajectory and they were catapulted into popularity. There was an incentive, there's an incentive sometimes to say certain things, to say them in a certain way. Again, that, that incentive is often popularity and just money. Do you know that about the people who talk to you? The people you let into your earbuds, me. I, you, you let me into your earbuds. You let me into your car. I have certain incentives. I want to be more popular. Now, I don't want that more than I want to be correct and biblically faithful. If biblically faithful means a 2,000-person audience making you know, a little bit of money on the podcast for the rest of however long I do this, that's cool. That's fine. Now, I want the other thing, though. And that's my that's the incentive I have. But Lord help me to keep biblical, biblical faithfulness above all else. But someone else in your ear, someone else you talk to, 
sometimes their incentive is they just want you to keep listening, get other people to listen, sh- share share it, grow it, subscribe, uh, donate, all those things. And if they think they need to say something they don't even believe to get that from a lot of people, they'll say those things. And it's this perverse incentive that David French had. The incentive became, we'll have a lot of followers, followers, you'll get a lot of adulation, you'll get a lot of praise from us if you'll just keep saying these types of things, and it has gone badly. So, word one, incentives matter in the media people you consume, and so be mindful of that. Which leads to number two, we have to watch our media diet. I think I, I talk about this a good bit. Some of you know I'm I'm fairly well into fitness, and as I've gotten older, I've gotten more and more into nutrition. I'm a strict calorie counter. I, I don't eat a lot of sweets. It's very, very rare that I, I'll do that. I mean, I, I'm into counting the macros, how many proteins versus fats versus carbs. I'm, I am careful about what I consume in my diet. I think it's it's actually one of the, the things that surprises me more and more that we are a country that are it's really eating ourselves to death. That's that's our issue. We eat ourselves to death. That's our big public health issue. And it's not talked about more. It blows my mind. It matters what our diet is for our health. And your media diet matters a ton. Is it a balanced diet? Do you get a lot of Christian thinkers and good theology to go alongside and maybe to even supersede your entertainment quality? Are you getting media nutrition that calls you up into higher thoughts, into more biblical thoughts, theological thoughts? Are you getting a lot of media that speaks not primarily to your left brain and reason, but speaks to your right brain and how it might make you have fear and anger? That's my, that's my challenge to finish today. Let's watch our diet. I mean, sure, that food diet that I mentioned, yeah, watch that one too. Uh, but what we put in our ears changes who we are. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.